Welcome, everyone. Um, very excited to be here uh, with my colleague Reshma on our now second uh, podcast of the Take On series, as Reshma and I take on various different topics um, and hopefully provide some light into what it is that you guys want to know. So last week we talked about what uh, we look for in founders and it's, it's very fitting therefore to continue on the topic of people and talk about uh, investors that are part of your round. And so we wanted to uh, jump straight into existing and interested investors that either you'll have uh, someone like us be a syndicate with for an investment round or investors that you are considering to include as part of your round. And this week we were very excited because um, on this very same note, we had one of our companies raise financing from Andreessen Horowitz, which you all know is a very well-known Silicon Valley investor. Uh, and uh, we're very much looking forward to sort of the experience and, and network that they will bring. But we'll talk a little bit more about what attributes we think make an investor amazing. Um, and perhaps what we could do now is just share a little bit about the history of, of TransferWise and the investors that have made it possible. Yeah, and I love, I love this topic because I love the saying, friends are the family you choose. And I think for, you know, when you are setting up your startup or business, um, you can very purposefully choose your family. And that's part of that is your investors that you bring around the table with you. So you can build the family you want and uh, have, have kind of a family unit, um, you know, that, that, you, that you want, the culture that you want. So I think if you take, you know, take uh, TransferWise's case, there's probably two, two factors to this family that we are sort of CCAM, TransferWise team, and all the investors that came after us um, is huge ambition to, you know, to delight customers and make, make the world that better place. And the second is sort of brutal honesty. And everyone I can, I can think of in, that, in the family around the table, you know, exemplifies those two qualities, right, is, uh, is huge ambition. So the guys like, um, you know, I Ventures out of New York, Index out of London, Valor Capital, which is Peter Thiel's arm out of, uh, out of San Francisco and New York, Richard Branson's team with Mosaic out of, out of London as, as well. Um, you know, and now Andreessen are in joining the family as well is I don't think you can point to any one of the people around around that table in that, you know, around that dinner table who don't have huge ambition. And if you meet the if you meet the people that are on the board or that represent the, the funds, um, they, you know, they all sort of bring some uh, a huge level of brutal honesty to the table. So our family is kind of defined uh, by maybe a couple of those, couple of those um, attributes. And it begins with the founders. I mean, I think if you meet Christo and Tavit on any given day, you know, big ambitions, um, but also very Estonian. Like they're very just matter of fact. Yeah, and it is what it is. That's what we saw in them. Like the first time we met them, remember, like uh, back in the day. So yeah, it's it's great to see that how their trajectory has has grown. Yeah, so their DNA, you know, is, uh, is imprinted across their investor base. So what does it uh, mean to have an amazing investor? What are the components? If we had to break this down into parts, what would that look like? Now, 
not too long ago, um, we wrote a, uh, um, a blog on our resources page, if you want to go read it, um, that breaks this down into what defines a, a, a tier uh, of an investor, an ideal investor. So let's kick off with that list. And I think the first one I want to jump into um, is one that's very, very interesting for me because it's not something that not everyone would necessarily rank as the number one thing. And this is for me the number one thing that makes an amazing investor. And it's having a great network. And Rashma, feel free to disagree with me on this. But the reason why I put this is because, um, you know, I've had the pleasure of working with some amazingly brilliant people. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, woke, uh, I worked with some of the leading PhDs that were doing due diligence and, and, and uh, looking for deals in spaces that they were masters in. Now, what I noticed, though, that in spite of the value add that, that they could bring on a product basis or on any element of sort of the, the, the value chain or go-to-market, the biggest uh, value adder that an investor can bring is the network to unlock the, the hurdles that some of the founders might have. And, and sometimes the hurdles to focus on uh, are not necessarily product hurdles, not uh, operational type hurdles, which are usually left or should be left, in my opinion, to the CEO and their team, but rather network-based hurdles. You know, I need to know such and such or such and such governmental things just change. Can I get a connection into that? And I think definitely that's one thing that uh, at Seedcamp we, we, we pride ourselves in, but that's definitely the factor that I have seen be the biggest influencer in, in, in whether an investor is high, high tier. What do you think, Rashma? Yeah, and I think, um, I think it's along sort of two, uh, two vectors where that network, why the network is so important. So one is, you know, as an investor, you're not operational. Like you're not, you're not building this business. The founders and the team they hire and bring on are. So in, in that sense, you know, you might be able to ask the right questions and bring up the right issues that may, you know, that may lead to a roadblock around product or marketing or sales sort of to, to, um, to, fall, to fall away. And that, that might happen. But actually, because you're not operational, you know, that's, that's not the, the skill that you're, you're around the table necessarily for. And the second is, I think, an investor's belief that um, they don't know everything. That, that that singular individual doesn't know everything. And so how do you exponentially grow what you know is through your network, is through the people you know. And that's the only thing, you know, that's what you can bring to the to the table is is who you, who you know. So I absolutely agree. I mean, that, that you know, on, on my uh, scale as well, it's the number one uh, value add that an investor can bring. Um, I guess that the... the Second one that, that we talked about was um, having a great brand name. Actually, I'd love, love sort of your thoughts on, is it the individual or the fund? I mean, what, you know, what, do, you, what do you think, I guess, if you think about sort of Andreessen, Andreessen Horowitz coming on into this round? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. Um, and that's actually one that is always brought up when founders ask, like, um, if they've gotten interest from a specific uh, investor. And I think it goes into two, two branches. One is um, some investors have such an amazing name that um, the mere mentioning of their name can open doors indirectly. Like, yeah, I've been funded by such and such, and that can provide your company with instant validation. Um, it, can, it can make you definitely sound a lot more sort of established in, in the face of customers, partners, and, and potential new investors. But I think one of the great things is when you can have a combination of both brand name of the funds with the brand name of the investor who's going to be 
on your board because I think it's it's I, I would definitely if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rashma, if you differ, but I definitely would not take a tier one name, but not the ideal or the best fitting uh, investor on my board. So you know, every single every single fund has multiple partners, and it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to get the most value from one of them. Not because they're not smart, but because perhaps they don't know your industry, or you guys don't yeah. have a working relationship where you can be honest with them. Yeah. And I would definitely, uh, I would definitely err on the side of having that relationship versus just the brand. But when you can get both, it's extremely powerful. Absolutely, and I guess I mean in a way, you know, how we built Seed Camp was. Um, slightly anti-VC in the sense that, you know, it's not a Carlos or Reshma or anybody else on our team being, you know, being your board member or the go-to person. It is Seed Camp and it's the Seed Camp team. So, um, you know, in, in our model, it's really a lot about, you get both, actually, you get both of our help, right, is, is both, both of us. But VC funds aren't, um, traditional VC funds aren't organized that way or, or work that way. So I think to, to your point, you need, ideally you need both for a win-win is to have a great brand name as a fund and a great brand name to actually work with you and care about you and, 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 and sit on, sit on your board. And um, I guess if I look at transfer wise, I mean, again, it's, it's a, uh, it's a combination. So, you know, with IA Ventures, um, they're known a lot in New York, maybe not as much maybe outside, but you know, Roger is an incredible board member, right? And then with Valor, Peter's name is, is known, um, but the rest of the team, you know, does an incredible job on, on the board as well. So again, I think you can, uh, different funds are organized different ways. Ideal combination is both. Um, within that, you know, you have, to, you have to find sort of, again, who fits your, who fits your family model best. Yeah. Well, one thing that's kind of um, tricky to address, but I think it's important to at least mention, is does the investor have the right level of capital to support you? Now, we actually just had a chat today about one of our companies who was, who was considering uh, a couple of investors. And the interesting thing about it is that, you know, in some cases, some investors will be amazing for, let's say, a short-term investment. And other investors will have, uh, in, in sort of investor talk, the gunpowder to uh, invest across the lifetime of your company. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you would turn down an amazing investor, especially if you could have them on your board, because they're, they did not necessarily have the funds to invest beyond a Series C or a Series A. But it is something interesting to consider, especially when your company has potentials for high growth, and that growth will require rounds of increasingly large size, as you can see some of the, the sort of billion dollar club has. So it's something to consider. I wouldn't necessarily dismiss some funds, especially in your early days, yes. because the fund isn't uh, the kind that can, can take you throughout the lifetime. But if you did have the, the sort of the option of having multiple investors and you could pick which one you wanted, clearly the, the better choice in, in, in provided that the two things that we talked about earlier are met is having this ability to, to, to support you throughout your lifetime. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I would add probably much more to that. Uh, one thing I will say is some founders shy away from having a big name er, early on. And I would caution against that. I think if you're doing that, you're sort of playing to lose. I think if you're playing to win, you know, you welcome, um, you welcome somebody with a, a lot of deep pockets, you know, if you can, around the table. And you just, you know, the pressure is that much 
higher to execute and show results so that that uh, that fund fund does follow on. So I think if you're having that doubt or question in, in your ma- mind, I think you play to win and and uh, and you you know you bring someone with deep pockets on alongside actually very early on people who don't have deep pockets because they they bring so much expertise around around the table. Talking about expertise actually, I mean Carlos, what do you think about sort of you know, investors with particular sector expertise versus, um, you know, versus... A generalist. That's, a generalist, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it really does depend. The best thing you can do is if you can have a mix, um, especially like if you're building a syndicate of investors, if you can have one person who knows the area quite well or at least understands the dynamics of your sector. So, for example, I think Point Nine Capital has done an amazing job of carving out its knowledge as a SaaS, you know, software as a service player. And so it understands a lot of the fundamentals there. Uh, another European investor that, that has like, pretty much carved out a niche in, in terms of, of financial investments is, is you know, um, Anthemis, but there's other funds that have more generalist uh, views like Index, but have a lot of expertise in these sectors like FinTech as well, because of the nature that have multiple successful investments there. But I think what it really comes down to is getting somebody who not only has the network, as we mentioned earlier, as part of that expertise, but also has seen a lot of battles, you know, you know, whether it's in the payments industry, who the players are, you know, what their, what their rates are, how much they charge, and all these components, which can help you navigate and avoid some, some, some serious landmines. So I think, again, if, you, if you, you know, you're designing your family of investors for your startup, I think uh, probably you know, what you're saying is have, have both, right? Go after tier one that does have an immense sort of um, vertical experience and expertise, especially complex industries, probably, you know, fintech, health tech, et cetera, and go for horizontal investors who um, can build, bring build, business building expertise and uh, because nowadays to win, you know, it takes a combination of both. So the business builders who can help you bring the right talent and mentors around the table for product, marketing, uh, all the function, functional expertise along with what it takes to win in, in your sector. Yeah. yeah. I think um, another element, and we're going to move into now, let's say uh, elements have to do more with sort of the investment side of things. Um, I think one of the things that I've noticed is very helpful um, is an investor who has deal experience. I think there's a lot of investors out there, for example, who have, let's say, left an industry job or are, you know, were successful in, in, in some venture but haven't necessarily done deals. And, and this can create some stressful situations, uh, whether it be during the M&A process later down the road or whether it be in the initial investments or navigating co-investments and syndicates partially because they just um, not really sure like what's best practices, what, what's done in different jurisdictions, and being able to really navigate that in a way that can reduce anxieties and, and help educate a lot of the other investors that might be around uh, the board, especially if you're, you have angels and, and other uh, sort of advisory type folks involved, which may not necessarily have that kind of experience. Yeah, and uh, but I I think you gotta um, you gotta manage sort of the the voices around around your table because uh, one of my pet peeves, you know, is is sort of people who don't have deal experience, who sometimes shout the loudest, and it's extremely distracting to the the fundamental business drivers versus focusing on a lot of uh, 
admin things and um, deal-related things that don't really have massive Im- impact on, on, on the business. So it just, it's a pet hate of mine. And, uh, you know, on, on that note, I mean, when when we participate on, on boards, there, there are a bunch of areas where I, I literally kind of say, I have no opinion on this, I have no view on this, because it's not my expertise, it's not my experience. And, and so all I'm doing is adding adding noise that's really uh, useless and counterproductive. You never add noise that's kind of useless and counterproductive, <laughs> Rashma. Come on. Sure. Well, I, I think maybe we can and jump... And maybe that goes into, yeah, being, exactly. <laughs> being burdensome. Yeah, right? being burdensome. We don't want investors on our boards that are burdensome. And what does that mean? Well, I think we've all heard the horror stories of the investors who are asking for five-year projections on your financials and are asking you for your audited accounts and really focusing on things that are really not the key things necessarily to be focusing on in a very early stage business where so many other things are of, of, of importance, including things like your team and validating the key assumptions that you have set out to validate early on. So very, very, um, very demanding investors that, that sort of approach it from this way can really create a, a very um, caustic uh, dynamic within a board. And so I think generally speaking, one thing you could do is start getting a feel during your initial conversations with an investor that you're considering to see how they react to that. Well, what is it that they're prioritizing? You know, what are the things that they're picking out? Are all those the things that you know are really important? Or are you going to end up having the tail wag the dog or however the expression goes? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I think yeah, trust your judgment. So, you know, biggest thing as a founder is um, your your team, your your investors, everyone's relying on you to have pretty sound judgment as you as you uh, deliver your business towards delighting customers and, and to you know successful kind of run. Um, and if you if you kind of sense yourself sort of questioning why investor certain investors asking you for you know the hundred page number 100 to your business plan, uh, you know, it is a red flag and, and you should sort of call it up and you should get a sense check whether it's sort of normal to to, um, to be providing, you know, that level of analysis for the situation you're in. So again, surround yourself with people who have experience and expertise and can, and can uh, you know, help you through that situation because the one, again, the worst things you can do is go along that path because you started on it. And, uh, and you think, you know, because you've spent all of that energy and, uh, energy and, uh, time on it that you just have to continue to answer those questions. And you know, a lot of, a lot of common sense investors will, or, uh, you know, people with common sense are asking you questions partly to understand how you think and partly to see what a potential answer is. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's very normal for you to push back and say, Hey, I'd like to know why you're asking that. What will this help you learn? What are you, what will you understand? And I think, again, that's a, that's an amazing sort of, um, attribute to see in, in a founder who pushes back a little bit and who, uh, who's fundamentally thinking about, you know, how, how you consider making in investments. So just, uh, you know, don't take a lot, a laundry list of Q and A as just, standard operating procedure, sort of think carefully about it. Yeah. Um, During that conversation, I think one of the things that you can also start getting a good feeling for, and we covered this earlier um, when we were talking about the the TransferWise story, is finding an investor who has a big vision. 
And what does this mean? It means that you're not the one who is fighting to, um, to get everyone on board. Rather, everyone is on the same page on what your company could become. So good investors will help you not only with the best practices of, of company building, but they will also help you set the right vision for the business. You know, if your business is uh, in the right hands, for example, like uh, the investors who probably back Twitter, you know, they had they, they knew what this could be at scale. Whereas I remember uh, back in the days when Twitter was starting, you know, there was a lot of conversations about should that business have been uh, forcing revenues much earlier. And I think it's not just about let's go for the big billion dollar business uh, on, on as, a, as a simple statement of what a big vision is, but also tolerating some of the growth components that might have to get you there, whether that be no revenue because it's a network effect business, or whether that is uh, sacrificing a, a specific customer segment because the one that you're going after has you know, a higher margin or perhaps you need to monopolize that before you can go multiple different sectors. All these little components are components that are sometimes very hard decisions but are all stemming from investors who have the guts to, to stand for uh, this big vision and back you when you have to make these decisions and if they fail, they don't hold it against you. How do you, uh, so I, you know, I'm probably supposed to add something uh, pithy here, but I'm going to actually ask you another question, which is, I was talking to one of our founders today, and I, actually we hear this a lot, is, okay, I'm meeting an investor, how do I show that I have a big vision, but that I'm not crazy, and that show that I can actually action on something over the next 12 to 18 months, which will seem narrow, but I really have a much bigger vision for three and five years out. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that you can do is a, is a tool that we use internally called milestone articulation. And it's, you know, whenever you're stating like what it is that you think your business can be, um, obviously you're going to state things in, in the perspective of what you can foresee it being as of right now. Sometimes things mutate, th sometimes things grow beyond what you expect them to. But I think at least if you can talk about it as to what it will be when in its current iteration will be successful, then the next phase is to talk about it in the next steps that you need to take. So for example, it might be that you're going to build a business who will change food delivery worldwide uh, of organic foods, for example. Then I guess the question then becomes, well, how do you kick that off? And is that a function of a B2B, uh, B2C process? Is it through partnerships? Is it through retail partnerships? Is it through workspaces? And it's both the combination of articulating a big vision that you could see uh, in a market that has yet to be disrupted and identifying a key market, but also then articulating the steps that get you there that, the, that combination is a very powerful combination because it shows vision, but it also shows a pragmatic operational uh, visibility that is what investors are looking for. Yeah, and I think, um, I think a lot of founders get this really wrong. Like, I think they start to talk about the 12 to 18 months of, um, you know, product market fit and traction and growth in a particular space. And then they get so caught up in the details of executing on that they're never never they never get to the part about what you know what will this look in a in a at scale or in a bigger way three five ten years down the road or they get so caught up in the intellectual vision of changing you know changing an industry dramatically that they never establish credibility of being able to execute on something in those 12 to, 12 to 18 months. So I think kind of key takeaway, um, you know, here is you, you really do have to do both. So catch yourself if you, if you're erring too much on one, one or the other. 
Well, I think we've given you guys a, a lot of food for thought, and hopefully you have found this session interesting and useful, and may perhaps even funny at times. Um, the idea here, as we mentioned with the Take On series, is that we want to continue to looking at certain aspects that will make a difference for you in your fundraising, but also in understanding how investors can make decisions. So with that, until next time, thank you. Thank you. Make sure you choose your right family. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.